Well, all right, good morning to you, all right? If you're new, welcome to Citadel Square. You picked a great Sunday to join us. Let me tell you why. You were handed something on the way in that is our brand new uh, Gospel of Luke study guide. You get one of those? If you got one, hold it up so we can see. If you need one, uh, there in the back, you can go ahead and grab one. If you don't have one right now, you can grab one on your way out. Here's why we do this. Our whole staff team comes together to build these study guides. Uh, and they're for really two big purposes. One, for you personally, as you engage with the text of Scripture that is now in your hands as we preach it. Uh, we pray that that blesses your own personal devotional study as you grow in your faith and your knowledge of God's word. But number two, therefore, uh, our community groups that will use this material to be able to lead discussions and conversations with other people. If you're discipling an individual and you're reading through the book of Luke, this would be a great uh, tool for you to study, research, examine, and then sit down with somebody else to be able to read and uh, gain greater knowledge and kind of get your hands around what's happening in the book of Luke. So this first study guide here will take you up through the, uh, if you look at the end of it there, it'll take you all the way up through the first part of Luke chapter 4. And uh, we'll give you the next one uh, and when that one will be done here once we get through the new year. Uh, we have finished our study of the book of 2 Corinthians, and I thought Christmas is coming. Have you said this week, right after Halloween, I saw Christmas inflatables go up. So that person that I drove by their house, they are ready to get rid of the goblins and the ghosts and the skeletons, and now we need Rudolph on the front porch. Uh, and I thought if you're going to start a gospel, now is the time to do it because especially in the early part of the gospels, you have a lot of runway until you get to Jesus' public ministry. So I thought this would be a great time for us in the season and in the year to sort of take Advent and stretch it out a little bit as we meditate on who Jesus is and his coming to earth. Uh, so for that purpose, uh, we're going to study the book of Luke, duh, right? Uh, so you have that in your hand. Go ahead and turn to the book of Luke and let's talk a little bit about what this book is here in your Bible for. So turn with me to Luke chapter 1. Let me get all my, all my gear set up here. <clears throat> Luke chapter 1. Let me talk a little bit about who Luke is uh, in a little bit of a, of a runway. Uh, Luke is a, a pretty common individual, somebody you'll see in several places in your New Testament. Luke is called Paul's fellow worker in the book of Philemon. He's called the beloved physician in the book of Colossians chapter 4. And Luke is a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul all the way up until the end of his life. At the end of 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul will say that Luke alone is with him. So Luke is, is well known in the, in the New Testament biblical literature as, uh, as being a doctor, being a physician, being somebody who was probably Paul's own uh, traveling companion uh, as he viewed Paul's ministry going on throughout multiple missionary journeys. Uh, Luke is a gospel account, is a, uh, one of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that talk about uh, compiling the narrative life of Jesus Christ and all of what he did from three different sort of perspectives. They're, the material in Matthew, Mark, and Luke tend to overlap. Uh, Matthew and Mark are very close in the, in the document and the material that they have, but Luke is interesting that as one of the other synoptic gospels includes about 30 plus, about 35% of material that's unique only to the book of Luke. If you didn't have the book of Luke, you wouldn't have Jesus and Zacchaeus and the sycamore tree. If you didn't have Luke, you wouldn't have uh, the rich man and Lazarus. You wouldn't have the parable of the prodigal son without Luke. So in that way, from Luke chapter 10 to about Luke chapter 20, you have a lot of material that's really unique to Luke himself and his own research in amassing the story of Jesus' life and what he did. Uh, while Matthew writes for the Jewish audience and Mark writes for the Romans, Luke writes for the wider Gentile world. Uh, there, in Luke, Luke is kind of the gospel of the underdog. Uh, a lot of Jesus' time in the book of Luke is spent eating. There's no other gospel. This is important. So when you go out and somebody quizzes you about Luke, you go, you know, Jesus spends more time eating in the book of Luke than any other gospel account, which is helpful for some reason. I don't know why they include that. Uh, but Jesus spends more time with the outsiders in the book of Luke than any other gospel. Those that the religious Jewish society despised and hated. 
He's out there with the sinners, out there with the tax collectors, out there with adulterous women. He's, he's out there on the fringes. So if you have ever felt like an outsider in the church, if you've ever felt like an outsider in a culture or a time in your life where you didn't feel a part, then Luke is a great encouragement to you to see that Jesus goes out toward those individuals who are outcasts in society. So as such, I thought, boy, Luke is really a, a gospel that we need today. Because as we pray for the nations of the world, we see in Luke a picture of Christ for the whole world. Where if you're going to talk to somebody at work, if you're going to talk to somebody in your family, you might come to the book of Luke to engage them with the truths of Jesus encountering people who don't fit the mold of people who feel like they're not a part, of people who feel alone and outcast and ostracized from friend groups, from society. And what we need in the book of Luke is to watch a Christ who comes for those people. Amen? Isn't that good news? So Luke uh, stresses Jesus' concern uh, for all people. If you want to preach prosperity theology, you know where you go? You go to the book of Luke. That typically Luke, in his handling of money, is a great place to get really bad preaching and teaching if you don't interpret Luke's parables on money right. So typically you'll have pastors who will take a period of time and study just the Lucan parables because they have a tendency to be twisted out of context so often. So we're going to look at uh, Luke chapter 1. Verses 1 through 4. As I said, Luke is a physician. He's an incredibly well-read individual. He writes in wonderful Greek. Uh, he, he's regarded as a very intellectual and trained person. He's probably a God-fearer. That means he might be a Gentile. He might be a Jew. We really don't know his background. But in teaching and compiling his narrative and pushing it out to the whole world, it's probably that Luke himself is a Gentile. So what you're going to see here, this is something I'm going to do. I've done in smaller contexts in our church before, but something I want to do for the whole church here as we look at Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. It's a single Greek sentence. It's broken up into four uh, verses in our English Bibles. But this is one of the premier texts that talk to you about how you got the Bible that's in your hand. It's an incredibly important text that gives us a window into the first century and how these individuals took the stories of Christ, compiled them into one place, were inspired by the Holy Spirit, and then written down for generations of future Christians to examine, to read, and find great joy and comfort in. And we're going to look at one particular pastoral uh, issue in the life of the church. In fact, this particular issue has probably affected your spiritual life at one time or another. There are probably individuals here this morning who have come in and are thinking about their spiritual life and wondering, where is God? What is he doing? I don't understand his plan. I'm not sure if the things that I've been taught since I've been a kid are even valid today because I'm facing these kind of experiences. I'm facing these kinds of relationships. I'm facing these kinds of difficulties in my Christian life. And I wonder, does the truth of God still have anything to say to me? So in four little bitty verses, the goal of Luke's account is to give you and to give me great certainty and confidence that what we hold in our hand is the word of God. All right? That's where we're going to go. You with me so far? All right. Let's pray and ask God for his grace and we'll jump in here together. Father, Thank you for your church gathered that sings the truths that make our hearts come alive. Father, we pray that for these few minutes you might give us hearts to understand and minds to see the truth of what is before us in your word. That for those who have come in this morning and are struggling in their Christian life, that by the end of our time together, they would give, you would give them new wind in their sails. They would, they would return again to the word of God that is the truth that sets men free. And Father, as I, as I teach and we look into your word here this morning, I pray that uh, it would come alive in our hands and that you would bless us and you would encourage us in our ambition to know you and to learn of you. And it's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so Luke chapter 1. 
verse 1. Y'all there? Got your Bibles? All right, Luke chapter 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative. Now, from right, right from the jump there, Paul uses a, an interesting word that inasmuch is probably a word that you don't use very often, right? Uh, it's almost a not, not a word. I mean, it's probably three and a half words all smashed together, but essentially it takes the meaning of since in our English Bibles. It's a therefore word. It's the presumption that Luke begins in talking about the narrative that he is compiling. And he begins with the truth that there are many who have undertaken this work. In Acts chapter 26, there's a story of Paul, and Paul is before two kings, Festus and Agrippa, and he's talking about both his own conversion experience, and then he's connecting it to the prophetic uh, word that is fulfilled in Jesus Jesus Christ's life, death, burial, and resurrection. And as Paul is preaching about this truth, how Christ appeared to him, about his ministry being characterized by who Jesus is, he appeals to the prophets and he appeals to this King Agrippa and he goes right at the king. And he says, King, I know that you believe these things. You believe the prophets for sure. And what Paul says in Acts chapter 26 as he's dialoguing with these two rulers is this. This is Acts 26, 26. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. So here's Paul in his ministry that has taken him throughout multiple missionary journeys with Luke by his side, and he testifies about something that in the first century was something well known by lots of people. If you were to look outside of the biblical literature to an individual named Josephus, who's a Roman historian of his day and time, Josephus himself references Jesus Christ, his crucifixion, and his relationship to Pilate. So Paul says right from the beginning, Luke says right from the beginning, many people knew, know this story. Many people have seen what has happened. Many people have worked to undertake, to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. That word compile has to do, if you had the image of a, of a musical composer who was taking pieces of music and putting them together so that they would be in one symphonic whole, you would look at the arranger or the composer who says, I am taking these musical pieces and connecting them together so that the whole symphony makes sense. And that's what Luke says, these early writers did. They're taking the truth of Christ and they're weaving them together into a narrative. And then he says, these things have been accomplished among us. Not only is that past tense, but it's passive. And it's Luke's first entrance into the fact that he's about to record things for us that weren't merely history. In fact, that word accomplished might, met, might better be translated the word fulfilled. So what Luke is doing is not giving us a record merely of ancient Near Eastern history. Because there's a difference between events that occurred in sequence and things that have been fulfilled or accomplished, right? So if you were to say that things happened in the past, that's fine. But what you need is a grid overlaying, uh, 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 what's the word? A grid overlaying the events that allow you to interpret the events correctly, For you to be able to see that it wasn't just that X happened followed by Y followed by Z, but that there was a purpose behind X, Y, and Z. You with me? So that's where Luke starts. That something didn't just happen, something was accomplished. Something was fulfilled. There's a purpose and a design to all that I'm about to write for you. So that as Luke begins his historical narrative, he looks at events, these things that have happened. And these events that have happened, now he says have have an accomplishment, they have a fulfillment, they have a purpose and a design behind them. But these events didn't just happen, they happened where? If you look at the end of the verse, do you see where they happened? They happened among us. Which means not only is there an event, and things that were accomplished, but joined to those events were the experiences of people who were alive at the time and place. 
Stay with me. Verse 2. So what Paul, uh, Luke is going to do is take you from the events, their purpose, and their fulfillment, and now he's going to move to the sources. He's going to move to the people who, had, who were alive at the time and experienced these purposes, experienced these events. He moves to people. Verse 2, just as those who were from the beginning. Now, commentators, when they look at this word beginning, they note that Luke is doing something in his chronological arrangement of material. He has a beginning and an end. If you would just look broadly, step back and look, look at Luke chapter 1, you'll see where Luke begins his research. What's the very next paragraph talking about? The birth of an individual. Who is it? Did you say John? I heard John and Jesus and half of you are right and half of you are wrong. Just read it off the page. Just read it. Just the birth of John the Baptist foretold. Where does Luke start? He starts at the beginning. He starts at the conception of the forerunner who's to announce the Christ who is to come. So Luke says, just as those who were from the beginning... And he calls them something. That in the Greek, this is one group of people. It's not two. It looks like two in the English, but it's one group of people. Just as those who were from the beginning were what? Eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. And they have delivered them to us. So, Luke's story begins with events. Events that are not random, events that have a purpose and have a fulfillment, that were witnessed by eyewitnesses, by a group of people who were alive at that time, observing and recording and writing down and compiling this sequence of events. So the first part of that, I just want to look at briefly, is summarized in verse 2 as eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. I'll treat them individually just for the emphases that Luke is trying to get you to see here. But the first one that has to do with eyewitnesses is something that is consistently all throughout the New Testament. It's a key mark, in fact, of how the New Testament record of Jesus Christ was captured. I've got them on the screen, so you're not going to have to turn there. But in fact, in Acts chapter 1... Acts chapter 1, when they seek to replace Judas, here's what they say in Acts chapter 1. One of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. If you were going to fulfill the gap left by Judas, you had to be an eyewitness. Now, let me give you some other ones. Here's John 19, 31. Since it was the day of preparation, this is the end of Jesus' life. Since it was the day of preparation so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. What is John saying except that I was there when they pierced his side and I saw the blood and water. Second Peter 1 says this, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter talking about the transfiguration experience he had on the mountain. Here's another one from John. In one of John's epistles, 1 John 1.1. 1, 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things to you, so that our joy may be complete. You see the emphases? 
as you consistently move through the New Testament story, you have individuals who wrote down their experience. And here's Luke in verse 2 saying that these individuals were not only eyewitnesses, but they were also ministers of the word, which is an interesting way to say that what they were experiencing, they now began to serve in light of. The gospel proclamation message of Jesus on the cross for sinners, dying in their place, dead, buried, and raised, began to be the purpose by which these individuals wrote. The gospel now controls the New Testament because it becomes the single most important message that the apostles and the New Testament writers teach, preach, and evangelize the world with. Well, and here we are 2,000 years later. What are we doing? We're doing the same thing. We're preaching and teaching the one singular New Testament message by which men and women can receive forgiveness of sins, right standing with God, and an eternity with him. Now, let me show you one more thing. Uh, if this one isn't on the screen, so you're going to have to do some work and turn in your Bible or tap. Do uh, you see how the, the remainder of this, the last part of verse 2 works? Look at what he says. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have what? have delivered them to us. Now, I'm going to talk about Luke and who he is in a second, but Paul uses this exact term to bring together multiple things, experience, doctrine, and a multiplicity of witnesses over in 1 Corinthians 15. So turn to your right, 1 Corinthians 15. Luke, John, Acts, 1 Corinthians. And find the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm sorry, just the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15. The ministers of the word becomes basically Paul's mantra in how he preaches and teaches, especially in the Corinthian church. When Paul talks to the church, he says, I resolve to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's Paul's singular gospel preaching ministry. Now here in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 3, he says this, for I what? What's the verb? Delivered. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. What did Paul just say? He said they had eyewitness experience of the resurrected Christ. Now, I don't, there's probably not 500 people here at this time, but imagine being in a group of 500 people who all saw the resurrected Christ at the same time. See, if you're seeking to reconstruct an event from history, you need to start with the events. Did they happen or did they not? And to figure out whether or not they happened, what I need to find out is whether or not there was an individual there who had an experience of observing those events. Well, in our day and age, what, how do you do it? You get out your iPhone. And you take pics, and you have a video, and you prove that you were there, and this thing happened. I was a part of it. But now, when we get into a court of law, we can't just have one witness, can we? Does that work? No. Even in the biblical record, God in the Word says you can't accuse an individual except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Well, when you move into reconstructing the story of Jesus Christ, Paul just said there were 500 people who saw the resurrected Christ. You could go talk to Peter. You could go talk to Paul. You could go talk to the apostles. You could go talk to Doubting Thomas and hear his story. You could go talk to Mary Magdalene, hear her, hear her story at the tomb. So when Paul shares this story, he doesn't just arbitrarily shout doctrine at the church. He says, go check my witnesses. Go check my sources. Some of them have already fallen asleep in verse 6. Verse 7, then he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles. Last of all, to one as untimely born, he appeared also to me. So come back to Luke. Here's what you're seeing Luke say. He's not just talking about events. He's talking about events that have a purpose. 
He's talking about things that have been fulfilled. He's not just giving you one singular witness to that story. He said this happened in such a way where many people are writing this down. Many people are having this experience. Paul is saying there's 500 witnesses, all the apostles, doubting Thomas, the women who were at the tomb. You can go and talk to them. So we're recreating this first century experience of Jesus Christ. And here's Luke doing the work and saying these individuals delivered it to me. Now, you with me so far? Say yes. Just, just for my own heart, just so I know you're not asleep. So the question is, when you're seeking to recreate an event that happened in the Bible, when you are Luke and sitting down getting ready to write this story, we've got to ask questions. Did it happen? Yes or no? Who observed it? Was it one guy or was it multiple people? Let me illustrate this. The Book of Mormon was written by a guy named Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith was 18 when he claimed to be in the forest and to have an angel named Moroni reveal to him the location of ancient golden tablets that were buried. Joseph Smith claimed to have then dug up those tablets and read from them a fictitious language that described early indigenous Americans. And he made up a language called Reformed Egyptian. Newsflash, not a language. Joseph Smith then claimed to have taken all of the information from the golden tablets, written it all down, and then the angel Moroni took the tablets with him back up into heaven, and this guy walked out of the woods with the Book of Mormon. Now... You can laugh. But are you staking your eternal destiny on what an 18-year-old thought up in the forest? That's a serious question. I've met Mormons. I've talked to lots of Mormons. They're pleasant and they're delightful people. But they don't acknowledge the fact that the Book of Mormon comes from a singular individual source who had private revelations about imaginary languages and encounters with angels. The Quran is similar in that way. The Quran is written by a singular individual named Muhammad whose writings were compiled by an individual at the end of his life. All of those compiled writings were then burned and they propagated the book of more a book of uh, not Mormon, the book of thank you, uh, Quran in perpetuity. Private revelations from an individual about events that he did not experience. And I want to say that just so that you understand that the book that you hold in your hand, the 66 books, were written by 40 different authors over 1,500 years from a variety of backgrounds. Farmers, politicians, tax collectors, doctors, kings, all sorts of individuals. And they all tell a singular story. It's written in three different languages. It's written on three different continents. Imagine in our day getting together a farmer, a physician, a politician. Just those three let alone somebody at the IRS and a fisherman and getting them to agree on anything. And what the Bible claims is a consistent picture of unity throughout hundreds of years. So, you have events that have a purpose and a design behind them that many people observed, that are compiled and brought into a singular narrative that has a purpose behind it. Now, look at verse 3. Here's how Luke describes himself. It seemed good to me also. Now, isn't that an understatement? It's such a beautiful thing to me that God does not erase the personalities of the people who wrote the Bible. Here's Luke. Who's, listen, Luke is a research guy. He's a data guy. I doubt Luke is fun at a party. Luke is a researcher. He's an academician, if that's a word. He's a guy who looks for trends in the data. He's a research scientist. 
And as he's looking at everything that has happened, and he's hearing the stories, he's starting to compile in his mind the data, and he goes, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past. Luke said to himself, I think I have something to contribute to this story. And when the Bible talks about these individuals, Peter writes this in 2 Peter 1. He says that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And you have this beautiful picture of both the humanity of Luke and the divine inspiration happening. That word in Peter of carried along talks about sailors whose sails are full of wind moving them along to their destination. So when you read Luke and you read James and you read John and you read Paul, all of their personalities come through, don't they? Remember 2 Corinthians? How, how Paul's heart was wrenched for the church, how Paul cared so much how you can feel that in his writings. You're going to feel that in Luke, where Luke will use terms that make sense for him. He'll use terms that fit his own personality. And when Luke writes, he shows us here that it seems good to me having followed all things closely. It's, it's the pursuit of diligence in his craft. He doesn't just write randomly going, ah, spirit, come on, grab the pen, do what you ever want me to do. He said, I'm going to do the research. I'm going to do the work. I'm going to do it diligently. It's the same word that is used of Herod when he sends the soldiers to look for the Christ child. He says, go and search for the child diligently. And Luke says, that's what I did. That's the work that I did to bring you the gospel that's in your hands. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account. Now, I haven't said this about Luke, and if you're, if you're paying attention, you would have already seen this, but you would notice that Luke is a second-generation Christian. Did you see that? Because what Luke does, Luke accompanies Paul on his journey, right? Luke sees Paul's miracles. Luke sees churches started. He sees Paul's commitment to following Christ to the ends of the earth. But Luke wasn't an eyewitness of Jesus Christ. Luke is a second generation writer taking the testimony of eyewitnesses and now building his account from eyewitnesses and ministers of the word and now the traveling companion of the apostle Paul to put in our hands the truth of what he writes about Jesus. So it brings up a really interesting question for those of us who now are 2,000 years later. We are relying on the work of Luke who has compiled a story, who is a second generation, and now we are generations removed from the biblical record as Luke compiled it. You with me? Now here's what I want to do is just, just for a minute, you, you may think about this and go, well, if we are receiving from Luke a second-hand account as he researched with the eyewitnesses, and now Luke, we'll see in a minute, will now give it to a third generation of people. Here we are, generations removed. What confidence can I have in the story? As I was preparing this message, I was talking with Addison, <clears throat> our student ministry uh, guy thing. Is Addison here? Where's Addison? Good. Good. He's, you ought to be doing that. Our student ministry director, Addison. And Addison worked with some of this material and given it to our middle schoolers and our high schoolers. And they used the illustration, which I thought was great. You ever play the, the game Telephone? My kids love playing Telephone, only they start with the most goofy thing they can possibly imagine at the beginning. They never do something regular. So by the end, it's all sorts of warped, right? So you whisper the thing, if you've never played Telephone. You whisper something to the next person. The next person whispers to the next person. By the time you get all the way around the table, you all laugh because it's not at all what happened at the beginning. Well, what confidence can we have that this story that's been handed down to us throughout the generations, 2,000 years later, is it all reliable? 
So we see Luke's process. You with me, right? You see his process, how much work he did, how he examined the first century accounts, how many people did it. Christ appeared to 500 people, to all the apostles, to Paul himself, and Luke is writing it all down. So what I want to do is, is just for a minute is kind of dip my toe into the world of textual criticism. Literary critics often examine ancient documents to figure out whether or not the documents have been preserved appropriately and say with some degree of validity and veracity what they thought they said in the early years. So what I want to show you is something from uh, the New Testament that has to do with manuscript evidence that prove with some degree of confidence that the people who have delivered their writings to us throughout, down through the generations, uh, we can have some confidence in that. We can have some reliability. It can stoke the fires of our confidence that the book that we hold in our hand actually has God's word to us. So I, there's a chart that I'll put up here uh, behind you, and I'll just talk you through it real briefly. If the, there is more than enough information out there for you to be able to read more than I can accomplish in 45 minutes. So let me just say that. If you want more information on stuff like this, and you're, you're a data guy like Luke, and you're really into the research, there is tons of research where this is concerned. So take a look at this chart here. Uh, there you go. So here's how it's broken down. You've got the author, you've got the date written, you've got the earliest copy of the manuscript that we have. You have the original versus the copy in the time span between those two things, where we presume the original and the copy that has made its way down to us. Now, if you start with Plato, nobody would disagree that Plato was alive, right? But if you look at the manuscript evidence proving that Plato was a real person and Plato wrote real things, you would see that we have two copies of Plato's work with a time gap of about 1,200 years. Euripides was an ancient playwright in the Greek world. Julius Caesar, we have some of his writings from AD 900 that go back to now about 100 BC, so you've got a thousand year time gap with only 10 manuscripts. You see where this is headed? You've probably already made it. The most common one that people like to point to is uh, the Iliad written by Homer. Homer was alive at about 900 BC. The earliest copy we have is from 400 BC. That time gap is 500 years and we have 643 copies of those manuscripts, which give us a pretty good idea that Homer both wrote the Iliad and it's a consistent document. When you step into examining the manuscript evidence that makes up the Bible that you hold in your hand, only talking about Greek manuscripts, not talking about Egyptian, Coptic, Syriac, or any other Latin and Vulgate translations, you have 5,600 manuscripts that prove that the New Testament that you hold in your hand is, is reliable. I'm not talking about what the Bible talks about. I'm not talking about the claim it makes on humanity. I'm not talking about the biblical truths it contains. All I'm talking about is whether or not the document that you have is valid as a document representing the ancient AD 100 writings. In fact, according to this chart and other research that has happened, I'm not talking about archaeologists. Archaeologists, the first place they go is to look at the Bible that tells them where ancient cities were located. I'm not talking about the prophecies from the Old Testament that are fulfilled in the New. I'm not talking about the statistics that have to do with how much statistical probability is associated with the fulfillment of those prophecies in Jesus' life. All I'm talking about is the document itself. The document itself that you hold in your hands there is not one other document that you can have more confidence, more veracity, and more certainty. By any and all accounts, it is the most faithfully preserved document of all time, bar none. Now, who cares? So for us to understand what the Bible is, I, I took this quote from a pastor named Dr. Vody Bauckham. I thought it was the best singular quote to give us a picture of what the Bible is that we hold in our hands. Here's what Dr. Vody Bauckham says. The Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents written down by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. 
They report to us supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies and claim that their writings are divine rather than human in origin. See, a lot of people that you will talk to outside of the church, outside of the Christian faith, will look at the Bible as if it's like a group of Aesop's fables, where I go to the Bible to figure out perseverance, just like the tortoise and the hare, I guess, I think. That one's in there, right? It's in Proverbs somewhere. They go, uh, it's kind of like the Bible is filled with moral tales. Hansel and Gretel, don't follow witches into the forest. That one's important. Use breadcrumbs. Right, but that's not what the Bible is. The Bible is a collection of historical documents written down by eyewitnesses who were alive with other eyewitnesses. They report to us supernatural events. They took place in the fulfillment of specific prophecies, proving that this book is divine rather than human in origin. So, I ask again, who cares? And the very last verse is the thing I want to focus on on for us today, just as as we finish up our time. I want you to note that all of Luke's writing is not merely historical, it's not merely intellectual, it's not merely well-researched. It's not merely handed by eyewitnesses to Luke so that Luke would kind of compile it in a library and he would do good work. But the goal of Luke's writing shows up at the end of verse 3 and end of verse 4. To write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Luke writes for a person. He writes to an individual who's heard the stories He writes to somebody who knows the story of of Jonah and the big fish. He knows the story of Moses on the mountain and the plagues of Egypt. He knows the story of the prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel. He knows the story of, of Esther. He knows the story of Samuel, the first prophet, and David, the king, and how Solomon followed and was one of the greatest kings of his day and how the kingdom fractured into two nations. He knows all of that. And he's heard the story of this divine God-man who claimed to be the Messiah, who said, I have come to seek and to save the lost. And Luke is compiling this whole story with a very certain individual in mind who struggles with doubt who struggles with whether or not the stories I have heard about the divine God-man who suffered on the cross for my sin, in my place, died, buried, and raised is still true for me. Because when we gather as a church, I, listen, there are people in this room right now who are wrestling and struggling with doubt. Who are wrestling and struggling with whether or not God loves them. With whether or not God has any purpose in this relational difficulty that I'm in. Whether or not Jesus pertains to my marriage right now or how I parent my kids or how I spend my money or what is happening in my life and all of these situations that I don't understand. And I've heard the stories since I was a kid and I remember flannel graph. Remember flannel graph, anyone? Yeah, four of you. The rest of you don't even wear flannel, (laughs) let alone graph it. I've heard the stories of this Jesus. I've heard the the places that, and the stories of what, who he is and what he's done and how he can forgive sins. And I'm not sure that I can trust them. And here's Luke doing the research, doing the hard work, doing the data and bringing it all together. And as he writes, he has Theophilus in mind. 
And he says, Theophilus, you've been taught some things, but I want to strengthen your faith. See, the Bible makes these incredible claims, doesn't it? It talks to us about heaven and hell and sin and righteousness and angels and demons and about a divine person sent from heaven incarnated into humanity who lived a perfect life, who drew near to sinners like us, who went to the cross to pay the price that we couldn't pay who died for our sins and in our place. And not only that, he rose from the dead proving that his sacrifice was accepted by God and we can have confidence that our sins are forgiven. And that is a crazy story. Right? That is unbelievable that you can tell me that my eternity is secure because my sins are forgiven in Jesus' name. That is incredible. It's awe-inspiring. It should shake you to the center of who you are. And Luke says, I'm writing it down. So that every generation of Christian who wonders, can I have certainty? Can the truth of God invade my life once again? Would the doubt that so easily entangles my heart and my mind be blown away by the truth of God and that I might find certainty in my relationship with him again? That's why Luke writes. See, Luke's heart is a pastor's heart. He goes to war for the people that he writes for knowing that, that doubt can quite easily turn into despair. Amen? that doubt is one of the most difficult subjective experiences to shake because it isolates us. You know when our GenLink residents hit this college campus over here? One of their prayer requests going into this season with new students was that they might be involved in a discipleship relationship and that they might be involved in a discovery Bible study where they went to the Word of God with someone else who didn't believe in the Word of God. And every single one of our GenLink residents is currently involved in a relationship with somebody who wants to explore what the Bible says, whether or not the Bible holds the story of Jesus Christ and whether or not they can count on it. See, we all struggle with doubt. We all wrestle with doubt, right? That happens to all of us. It's an experience that is common for every single one of us where the confidence and the certainty we have, it sometimes it's strong and sometimes it fades. But a lot of times what happens with doubt is that we have a tendency in doubt is to face a situation that doesn't fit our previous paradigm of experience with God and his word. And what we have a tendency to do is to take God's word and close it and go, I'm going to have to deal with doubt on my own. But what if, church, what if when we doubted, our decision wasn't to shut the book. What if we looked at God's word and said that God knows us so well and our struggles with doubt so well that he took data guys. He took the academics, the people who did the research so that we might hold in our hand the vaccine to doubt that so easily haunts us. What if we saw the word of God not as this book of Aesop's fables or better yet a technical manual for righteous living but what if we saw it as the antidote and the vaccine so that when we face situations that caused us to doubt God's goodness, to doubt that Christ is strong, to doubt that God can handle the difficulties that we're facing in our life, that we would through discipline and through shoulder to shoulder Bible reading begin to experience the confidence that the scriptures promise us once again. Why do you think we preach verse by verse by verse? Because I know there's no other place that you can find confidence that your sins are forgiven. There's no other place that you can find confidence that Jesus loves you. There's no other place that you can find confidence that he is sovereign over all things. Yes, even the dark days. There's no other place that you can find confidence that one day this world will not be the world that he recreates. 
that one day there will be no more spiritual warfare. There will be no more deception. There will be no more enemy and accuser of the brethren. All of that you get from this book. So when you walk in the back doors of this church and we stand in the pulpit and we look to God's word, what we're doing is fighting the battle for one another's hearts as we seek to blow away doubt and find certainty once again that God loves us, Christ died for us, he rose from the dead, and he's coming back to get us. So if you're here, and you're in the middle of a doubt struggle right now, and you're going, Steve, what should I do? You find one of the members of our church. You take the Bible that's in the pew rack in front of you, and you sit down with somebody and you begin to wash your mind and heart in the truth of God's word. And what you will find is this wonderful story where God knows who you are. Where if you feel like you're an outcast, you can find fellowship with the maker of heaven and earth. Let me close with this. Here's what Paul says in his own writings in Romans 15, chapter 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. That through the endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have what? Hope. What's the antidote to doubt? It's hope. Where do you find it? Through endurance and the encouragement of God's word. Father, we need to be reminded of your goodness to us in Jesus Christ. Father, for those who doubt in the room this morning, I pray that they would take the word of God and they would pick it up and read. That they would find their spiritual life strengthened once again. They would look into the word of God and find your faithfulness to us in Jesus Christ. That they'd find Christ on the cross for, saviors, uh, for sinners like us. And Father, as we doubt, I pray that we would be a church that runs quickly to your word, that would open it again and again and again and find a certainty driven deeper into our hearts and our minds. So Father, for those who are in this room right now and are facing the fight of opening the scriptures, I pray that you would give them strength, that you'd pray, you'd bring people around them that would be willing to read God's word together, that would pray for them, that would fight with them, that would be reminded of the certainty in our hearts that we all need, that we would find confidence again in our life with you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.